We are beginning our new sermon series, The Gospel According to Jacob, and our scripture reading is Genesis 25, 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. (coughs) Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, My name's Nate. Good to be with you this morning. Um, I told the crew when we were praying earlier that when we start a new sermon series, it's like Christmas morning for me. Uh, It really is. Uh, It's this, this, whenever I start a new sermon series, it's always like these truths are so good. I can't wait for them to change my life. I can't wait for them to change our lives. So really good to be with you this morning. Um, So we start this series, and um, we're going to look at the life of Jacob. And and Jacob, as we're going to see, is a profoundly, deeply broken person. Uh, He cheats, he schemes, he deceives. And yet, at the very end of his life, He is deeply transformed. In fact, at the end of his life, at the end of the book of Genesis, he says this about God. That God, he says this, he has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. In other words, Jacob looks back and he sees this. In the midst of his doubts, in the midst of his wanderings, in the midst of his struggles, in the midst of his questions, he looks back and he says this, God, you have been there throughout. And listen, some of us this morning, uh, you might be quite unsure what you believe about God. Other, I mean, others of us might be here and we are close to giving up on God. Some of us might be here and we're thinking, 
maybe God's close to giving up on me. And even this morning, if you feel like you and God are really tight, okay, you need to know this, that there are going to be dark days ahead. There are going to be struggles that you're going to have. And therefore, as you peer into the life of Jacob, you know what this gives us? This gives us hope. This gives us hope that in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our wanderings, in the midst of our questions, that there is a God who is there. And today, we start out with the origin story of Jacob. And we're going to see three headings today. We'll go on three headings. We're going to see Jacob's destiny, Jacob's ambition, and lastly, God's grace and our ambition. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. So Almighty God, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, through your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, hey, Jacob's destiny. You know, the, the, the beginning of Jacob's life, even before he is born, it's, it's so clear that he is destined for greatness. It's, it's amazing. So consider for a moment, right from the very outset, in verse 19, we begin to read that he's a descendant of Abraham. He's the grandson of Abraham. And this is significant because in the book of Genesis, Abraham's the one that God makes a covenant with. And he says, Abraham, here's the deal. Through your line is what's going to come and heal the entire world of all that's broken. When death and sin entered, I'm going to make a covenant with you so that someday all nations will be blessed through you. And right from the beginning, we see Jacob's in that line. That is not insignificant. That is very significant. But secondly... We see that even Jacob from the start, his origin is questionable because we learn that in verse 21 that Isaac, Abraham's son, who married Rebekah, they're struggling with infertility. And many couples do. And if you talk to these couples, those who have walked the road of infertility, they will tell you of the ache and the pain and the tension it creates and listen, as hard as it is today to walk through infertility, I want to suggest something. It was even harder then. You see, in that day, in the patriarchal society, a woman's role, her value, her identity, her meaning was simply this. You build a family. That's where it's found. And not being able to do that meant, well, you're not much of anything. And yet, in the midst of that ache and pain, it says that Isaac prayed for Rebekah. And this is interesting because you may remember this, you may not, but Abraham and Sarah had struggled with infertility. And they had gone a different route. They had gone the route of the culture of that day in which you would normally take the servant of one of the, of the wife who couldn't, who, who couldn't conceive, and they would give that servant to the husband. And then this person would be kind of a second-tier wife, and then through them would bear children. That's what they did. And listen, every time in the Scriptures there is polygamy, it leads to strife in the Scriptures. And it did with Abraham and Sarah. But here, Isaac prays. 
He doesn't go the route of the culture. And the verse tells us later on that it was 20 years of prayers. 20 years. But then we learn this, that the Lord answered the prayer. So listen, right from the top, we get this. Jacob's in this family line that's remarkable, distinct, the one that God made a covenant through. Secondly, we learn his origin, his actually conception was a miracle. It was an answer to prayer. That's no small thing. But there's more. In verse 22, we learn that in the stomach, in the belly of Rebekah, it says the children struggled together. And the word for struggle is the word that means to crush and is paired with words that mean to oppress. Robert Alter translates it this way, the children clashed together within her. One commentator said this, this was like an MMA fight inside the belly. That's pretty fun, right? And Rebecca, in the midst of her anguish, she prays, and it, it could literally be translated this, why this I? It's like she's in so much pain, so much anguish, she can barely get it out, but she prays. And you know sometimes when you're in anguish, that's about all you can get out, right? But she prays, and the Lord answers. And look at how God responds in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And there are two surprises in this oracle. The first is that there are two nations within her womb. That's remarkable. But the second is even more, that the older shall serve the younger. And this is something, because this, this actually shows us how grace works. It is deeply subversive. Because the primary practice of that day was something called primogenitor, which is where the oldest son had the position of honor and privilege and would carry on the family line as the head of the family. And for, for example, when, when the inheritance was to be divided, the firstborn would get the majority of it. And in this case, when there's only two children, they would get all of it. And yet here, God says this, I'm going to subvert the cultural moment of the day and I'm going to make sure the younger gets it. The younger is in that position. It also shows that God's grace is actually surprising. Um, later on, many centuries later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse, and notice what he says. This is Romans 9. He says this, Though they were not yet born, had done, done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And friends, here's a couple of thoughts what that means. It means that God's grace does not work like karma. It's not what you deserve. In fact, in all cases of grace, it's freely given, not on what you have done. Consider a couple examples of this. Consider when Jesus shows up. In his 12, he selects 12. There's a tax collector, a Roman collaborator, 
But on the other side, there's Simon the Zealot, who, by the way, the Zealots, they wanted to overthrow Rome. And yet they find themselves picked by Jesus to be in the same company. Or consider this, that the man in the, in the book of Acts who's actually picked to be the one to have the message of the gospel go to the Gentiles, one of the instruments, it's a man named Saul who persecuted the church. In other words, grace is so unlikely, it's deeply subversive, it gets you around people you'd never expect to find. And here, what we see is that God is going to work through Jacob, which, as you'll see in a moment, it is not his morality that qualifies him at all. (laughs) He is not that at all. And yet, God works in such a way to choose him. So as the origin account of Jacob starts, do you see, we get a sense for this, this man is destined for greatness. Uh, he's in the family line that God's promise would bless all nations. His arrival was not a foregone conclusion. It was, uh, in, in a sense, a miraculous conception and answer to prayer. And then thirdly, we find out he's going to be a nation, and not only that, he's going to be the one in the firstborn rights, which means he's going to be the one to inherit the promise of Abraham. And all of this is even before he's born. He's not even arrived on the map physically yet. What a beginning. But then we come down for a moment to Jacob's ambition. Even though Jacob is destined for greatness, we now begin to see that he is a long way to go. Because like many of us, Jacob is filled with ambition. He wants it now. He doesn't want to wait. And he's going to do whatever he can to get it. And here's what's interesting. We see it right from the outset at his birth. Look look at verses 24 through 26, the first part. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, All his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. The two boys are named right for this moment. Esau is named because that means hairy. How about that, right? Jacob's name because it means almost literally heel. He's grabbing the heel. Even from the start, he wants to get out first. This is a foreboding beginning because we're going to begin to see that this pattern continues for Jacob. He is going to be grasping for what he wants. And it's going to cause there to be a lot of breakdown of relationships, both with his brother and with his family. And listen, this only further is animated when we read in verse 28 that the parents had favorites. In verse 28 it says, Isaac, Isaac loved Esau because of the game, and it says that, Re- that, that Rebekah favored Jacob. Now, can we be honest for a moment? Sometimes our kids will come up to me and Amanda, and they will say, Dad, I'm your favorite, right? 
And parents, you know in that moment what you cannot say, right? And what you do not say. And that is because you love them equally. You love them as they are. They're all unique, right? But not for them. That's the distortion, right? And I want to pause here for a moment because this is interesting. I want you to see, because some of us here, we look around and we think about our family of origin, Or we might even look at our lives and how we've been living and what we've been desiring and we think, is there any way that God can actually work with people like me? Now I want you to notice this. This is what God starts with here with Jacob. In this family that's messed up. God starts with this individual who's grasping at the heel. He's, he starts with that sort of people. And this, of course, if you've lived long enough, you know this is true for anyone. In other words, I love what Frederick Buechner puts it this way, God makes saints out of fools and sinners because there isn't much else to make them out of, right? That's really good news. That God can actually work with the likes of you and the likes of me and do something to transform us from the, the very deep, and we see from the beginning how much work has to be done. Well, Jacob's ambition from birth continues, and the final scene of the text, taking place several years later, Esau shows up after hunting and is exhausted. And he says to Jacob, let me eat some of that, this is verse 30, of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And the original language is actually a little bit more coarse. He's basically saying, let me have some of that red, red. And Jacob, rather than having compassion, uh, rather than even culturally what's expected in that day to show some hospitality, he instead sees his chance to get what he wants. And in verse 31, he says, sell me your birthright now. You know, if you've ever seen the show Let's Make a Deal, it's, it's, a, it's probably my favorite game show. Um, it's, it's, it's one in which contestants, you know, kind of begin with something that they have. It might be like 100 bucks or they're getting 100 bucks. And they're like, hey, you can keep this $100 or you can have what's behind curtain number three, Right? So they have a choice to make. And sometimes they trade it in, and sometimes behind the curtain is a new car, and it's like, dang, that's amazing. Sometimes it's like a can of soup, you know what I mean, or whatever. It's just something so ridiculous, and they just totally lose and look like a fool. Well, here's what's happening here. It's a little let's make a deal. And in this scene, Esau is holding his birthright. The entire inheritance of his family... And behind curtain number three, and he knows what's there, is a bowl of soup. Now, is anybody in their right mind going to make that deal? Well, no. But Esau, in verse 32, says, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And it's, it's clear. It's clear he's speaking in hyperbole. He's not going to die but he's famished. And Jacob says, swear to, be, swear to me now. And he does. Now listen, 
there are some very bad trades in history. Like, for example, when the Charlotte Hornets traded Kobe Bryant for Vlade Divac in 1996. That was a bad trade. Okay. But friends, this, this takes the cake. And it's this final part of this scene where it says that Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. And it, it's actually clear in the original. It's, it's, it, it represents Esau's behavior as crude and thoughtless. And the, the narrator will just make it very clear, thus Esau despised his birthright. In other words, something so valuable, he saw as irreverent. Now at this point, let me ask you this question. What do you think of Jacob? One of my friends put it this way. He said, where is the judgment on Jacob at this point? Right? I mean, Esau is the one that gets rebuked in the text. What about Jacob? And here's the point. Actually, Jacob is rebuked in the text. It's actually writ large. Because don't you realize Jacob already was promised the birthright in the oracle. God had already told Rebekah that it was his. He, he more than likely knew it. He knew the promise. All he needed to do was trust God. That's all he had to do. Trust God and wait. God will work it out. And yet, what did Jacob do? He schemed. And in his ambition, he took a shortcut. And friends, he will have consequences later because his relationship with his brother and his family will be severed. And listen, friends, we are not so different than Jacob in our ambition. We, we struggle to trust God. For, for some of us, it's just this, this waiting for some day to be married or waiting on God for a family. Or for others of us, it's, it's this culture of self-expression and self-advancement that we want what that promised right now. And oftentimes, if we're honest, it leads us to cutting corners. It leads us to stepping on others or not thinking of others. And most often, if played out, it ends in brokenness. So here's the question. Where are those like Jacob and like us to look? Well, lastly, this passage shows us God's grace. Because he, years later, a descendant of Jacob would come. And one author, Ryan of Jesus, would say this in Philippians, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The passage is saying that Jesus, who had all the firstborn rights and privileges, and who was equal with God the Father, he didn't 
grasp for it. He knew who he was. And even so, was actually willing to become a servant, to put on flesh. And consider this, consider the life of Jesus. Think for a moment of when Satan tempts him, takes him up on the highest mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, all these can be yours right now. You can have it. Just bow your knee to me. And think about it. Jesus could have had all the kingdoms and had no suffering. But what did Jesus do? He trusted his father. He allowed his father to patiently work out what he was called to do in his vocation. And where did it lead him? Think about this. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus in the garden praying, And this is the moment where Jesus could have walked out. His disciples are sleeping. No one knows he's there except for Jews whose coming isn't arrived yet. He could walk out and he's praying to his father. Father, please take this cup from me. Not my will, but your will be done. Do you hear that? He chooses to trust. He chooses to wait. He chooses to obey his father to work out the plan of salvation. Now, why did he do it? The author of John puts it this way. So that those who would receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In short, don't you understand? Don't you understand the message here? Jesus, the one who had all the rights and privileges, nevertheless was willing to give up his rights in order to give us the status of being God's children through faith in him. And that means if you're his, do you realize what you have your destiny is? Did you realize the inheritance you have in him? And listen, this changes you. It has to change you. It actually changes how you live. Because now, if you know God has given you that in Christ, it enables you not to no longer have to grasp for what you want, to take shortcuts. It actually enables you to trust because he's loved you that way. Let me just, as we close here, begin to close, let me suggest three ways that this grace will transform, ought to transform our ambitions First is this, don't settle. Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this, he said this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Listen, I remember when I first heard this in college, and on Thursday nights, there'd be a a large gathering of Christians, it'd be like several hundred people, and I would go there. But Thursday night was also the night in which the whole college would go to the hill. That's where all the partying happened. And so about eight o'clock, I would go to this thing. I remember I'd get out afterwards. There's always this question in my mind. 
Am I missing out? And listen, when I heard this quote, things flipped for me. Because there can be a sense when you think about trusting God and pursuing Him that you feel like you're settling. And do you see what Lewis is saying? He's saying actually the opposite. Those on the hill, they're too easily pleased. There's infinite joy offered in Christ. Listen, be honest for a moment. What do you want right now? What are you striving for? Do you not understand that everything you long for and strive for, you actually already have more in Christ than you'll have in that? You know, it's like the 15-year-old girl who, though a Christian, says, well, yes, I know I'm saved, I know I'm forgiven, but none of that matters if I don't have a boyfriend. And we may chuckle at that, but the truth is, we insert other things in that. Do you not know what you have in Christ? Oh, it's so good. But secondly, this calls us to aim our ambition appropriately. Um, listen, Jacob desires the right thing, actually. I mean, he desires the birthright. That's not a bad thing to want. Now, how he gets there is completely distorted and messed up, right? Think about it. Jacob is serving himself. But listen, if you understand what you have in Christ, it enables you to channel your ambition not for self, but for God. So let me just work this out really practically for you. Some of you here are students. Some of you are doctors. Some of you are mothers. Some of you are husbands. Some of you are nurses. Whatever your calling, in Colossians 3, it says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And do you know what that means? It means actually in those vocations, you aspire for excellence. But it's not so that you get noticed. It's actually so that others look at your life, they can actually see, as Augustine said, let it be for your sake, speaking of God, that we are loved. In other words, if you're honored in your position, you're saying, I'm so free to do my thing with excellence that I can point to him because he's the source of all truth and good and beauty. Do you understand that? It changes how you work. It changes how you study. If you're a student, aspire for excellence, not so that you'd be noticed. You already have everything in Christ. But that you could actually point to him. In other words, this is interesting. One author put it this way. It actually means you need to take your office more seriously. If you're a manager, take that seriously. But then, on the same heart, take yourself less seriously. Do you see that? So important. All right, one more thing. Let me invite the band up as we close here. The third thing that we see here is to rest yourself in the love of God in Christ. You know, it's interesting. Think for a moment if, um, if Jacob, when he heard the oracle that he was going to be the firstborn, if he would have just hedged his bets and said something like this, wow, God must really like me. <laughs> for some reason, he must really be for me, right? There's something about that, like he's picked me. This is incredible. 
It took him a while to know that. It takes us a while to grasp that in Christ. There, there's a book by Athanasius entitled The Life of Antony. And in, the, in there, the character turns his eyes on his friend. And he says this, Tell me, I beg of you, what do we hope to achieve with all our labors? What is our aim in life? What is the motive of our service to the state? Can we hope for any higher office in the palace than to be friends of the empire? And in that position that is not fragile and full of dangers, how many hazards must one risk to attain a position of even greater danger? And once you hear something here, this, you're overhearing the conversation about some young people talking about what they're pursuing, their ambition, and they're going, if we could hear, if we could hear, look at this, but it gets all riskier because they could lose it. But then there's a turn. And it says this, whereas if I wish to become God's friend, in an instant I may become that now. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, because of the descendant of Jacob, that's what you have now. You can have God as your mighty friend in Christ. And listen, if you have that, it frees you to fail because that can't be taken. And it frees you to risk It also frees you to succeed because it keeps you grounded on what's most important. How are you living? Are you grasping? Or are you trusting? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we see in the life of Jacob, the kinds of people that you work with. We're so grateful that you work with people like us. Lord, would you change us to be a people who trust you in the very moments of our lives, in the very circumstances of our lives. Lord, give us wisdom not to grasp, but to wait. Give us grace to keep us level when we succeed, to keep us joyful when we fail, to know that in all of it, you are our shepherd. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.